Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, everyone, this is Mark Trichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm excited today to be here with Bill Payton. Bill, how are you doing today? Doing great, Mark. Thanks for having me. You got it. Yeah, you and I have chatted a little bit, discovered each other, I think, either over email or on LinkedIn. But I know that you've got a LinkedIn presence and you're the vice president, a vice president at Aloya Federal Credit Union. And you and I chat a little bit about liquidity in some of our sidebar conversations on LinkedIn. I know you also do some things with subordinated debt uh, and, uh, and a few other areas. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you today about uh, the interesting year we've had in 2023 in credit unions. How's that sound? It sounds great. And it has been interesting for sure. Yeah, it sure has. And anything else about Aloya on the front end? Any Anything from your, your resume you want to highlight in case uh, my viewers don't are, aren't connected with Aloya? I know Aloya serves, what, about 28, 30% of the credit unions, so some of them are probably well aware of you. But any other things I should we should highlight on the front end here? Yeah, just we're a corporate credit union, so we're a credit union for credit unions. Like you said, we serve somewhere between 25 and 30% of the credit unions, depending on how many merged that year. And we do, we serve them through the capital markets initiatives, which we'll talk about today, as well as the payment initiatives that the, the, the big piece going on this year and all through our technology. Yeah, we're, we're excited. Loy is doing great things for its credit unions. We support our tagline is we support credit union success. So I like it. I like it. We support credit union success. I think, I think. 2024 is going to be interesting in that regard because of some of the challenges we've had looking back and looking forward. But so let's chat a little bit about overall liquidity topics. What have you seen in credit unions and the credit unions and the clients that you have in 2023 as it relates to liquidity challenges? Obviously, we had uh, the banks that failed and, and the aftermath of that. Uh, but even before that, there were some challenges liquidity-wise and credit union. What is it that you've seen in 2023 um, that that you'd like to chat about here? Yeah, we're 2023 was interesting. It was, I say it was the, the the year we collectively lost our minds. It, it, we're really back to pre-pandemic levels. And I think we're so quick to forget just even recent history. And a, a lot of what I do is talk to credit unions throughout the country. And of course, there's issues, and so. During the pandemic, all that stimulus money came in and it was really good timing and credit unions had to be, they had all this money and they had to figure out what to do with it. But we're back from an aggregate level. We're really high levels, historically high levels. We're back to where we were right before the pandemic happened. If you just look at the overall numbers. But if you take like a, a deeper dive into that, those overall numbers are really spurred on by the large credit unions. If you dig into the different asset groups different asset sizes, I should say, mid and small size credit unions do have a little bit of money, right? They're not feeling the same pressure that the largest credit unions are. Now, I don't want to say that they're not feeling pressure. They are, they have, you know, deposits, they're fighting the deposit battle. They have to pay up for their deposits and they continue to see high levels of, of loan volume. 
But in general, it's probably not as bad as maybe we're one to, you know, the headline said. I, it doesn't mean that the top 20 largest credit unions aren't seeing really high liquidity. They are, but they're in, they're really driving the overall numbers. But if you took a, a deeper dive, it's not that bad now. I'll say this, I was chatting with a, a credit union who was maybe $200 million and they were telling me that they were having a liquidity issue and said, okay, what, what's your loan to share ratio? And they said 60%. Okay. That doesn't sound like a liquidity issue to me, 60%. And they said, historically we, we run at 50%. And so we're up, that's 20% over what we're, what we're up. And we're just not used to that. We like to be at 50%. Okay. That's a different problem, but I would say liquidity really isn't a major issue for you. are running a little bit higher. And so that's probably the same. If we were to just have that conversation with most credit unions, regardless of size across the board, it's probably the same answer we're going to get. They're feeling a, a pinch, but probably not that bad. No, a couple right. of yeah. very large ones, notwithstanding. That's a different story. Sure. It's a function of, okay, you got six, you, we're normally at 50% loan to assets. We're now at 60%. And what did they do with that other 30 or 40%? During the last five years, did they go long yep. with investments or did they keep it short? And how do they compare if you rack and stack them that way? But it's good that they're concerned about the liquidity side of things, even if it's that they don't have upside down investments and didn't go long and they're just wishing they had a little bit more cash. It's good that they're thinking about it because NCUA clearly is hitting it and hitting it hard in nearly every, regardless of what asset size. So. I've been doing this for going on 18 years now. NCUA has, will always hit it, has always hit liquidity. It's always important. It's never not going to be important. Even during the COVID years, they hit it, right? Because, hey, when is the money going to come out? Those things. Yeah, it's always going to be at the forefront of the NCUA's mind and should always be at the forefront of credit unions' minds. It's pretty good job security from, from that perspective. And I say that knocking on wood, but it's fun to be in the liquidity space because there's always something, right? And I think more than anything, 2023, your point, right? Credit unions historically stay short in their investments. Again, there's some credit unions that have gone long, things of that nature, which, which occur. But in general, credit unions do a really good job of managing their liquidity comparatively. They stay short. Sometimes that hurts their, their net income, but that's okay. It's better for their liquidity. And so again, I, I think credit unions are a little bit better off than maybe even Dell said to get them off to the side and really have a, a heart to heart with them. They might say it's all that bad. It ain't great, but it's, it's not where it was in March of 2023, when we thought the world was ending and SVB right. was, was failing and all those banks were failing, you know, it's tight, but we will get through this. And along those lines, I saw, I haven't read it yet, but I saw another podcast that was talking about an OC guidance on what their focus is going to be on in 2024. And NCUA comes out with that um, mid-January for credit unions. But the teaser on the podcast that I want to listen to and I want to re read the OCC report basically said they're, they've shifted their top concern from liquidity to asset quality and delinquency. So that's a shift in banks. I'm very curious to see NCUA has talked about that and NCUA's chairman has talked about loan quality and concerns there, the, in, the trends in that, uh, 
while, while the numbers collectively are not bad, the trends have been going in the wrong way, which isn't really a surprise. Sure. I'm thinking, I'm curious to see what OCC has to say. I'm looking forward to see what NCUA has to say in that regard, which kind of gets, gets us to a, a follow-up question. So 2023, um, we talked about what you've seen there. So what do you, so from where we're at, where do you see, what do you see out of the vision for 2024 for credit unions? And so another way, where do you think we're going? in that regard and, and either liquidity or anything else on your radar? Yeah. So I, I think liquidity will normalize a bit. I think it's going to be up, right? I think, I, I don't think we're going to see an uh, average loan to share ratio at 70% or 68%, whatever it was in 2020 or 2021. I forget what number it was, but it was down significantly. But I do think we'll get some ease from a liquidity standpoint. One of the great things that happened in 2023 is more and more credit unions got creative, right? In terms of how they, they get access to liquidity and manage their balance sheet. And, and the main thing that comes to mind is securitizations, right? And that's a hot topic seemingly every you know month or every other month, a new credit union will come out with a securitization. And I think there's been nine of them or 10 of them in, in a recent industry publication. They talked about how they expect more to come and we're seeing the same thing. But it's when, when times are tough, ingenuity and creativity comes, right? And I think we're seeing that in 2023. So securitizations, I think more and more credit unions will, will continue to go that route. I think more credit unions will continue to do interesting things. There is two credit unions in Texas, right? They were doing uh, a deposit swap and that became a real big thing for a while. I don't know how, how if that will continue to be of importance to credit unions. But I just highlight those things to say credit unions will continue to get creative as they need to manage their money and their balance sheet. And right you now, so what we're talking about right now, there's going to be a new creative solution that some credit unions will be bringing to the table in 2024 that we don't even know about. And I think more than anything, over the last three, four, five years, we've seen some real creativity across the board. And I expect that to continue to happen. So I expect more credit unions that issue securities or you know, go through the securitization process. I think more and more credit unions will look for outlets to sell some of their assets as they continue to originate loans, right? I'm excited for it. I think it's great for the industry. It's very intriguing, but it, it, and it, it, it can only be good things for us uh, for down the line. Sure, yeah, those, those are, it's interesting. I, I've got, I've had some conversations with the, with a couple credit unions that are now into securitization and it's not, it's not super simple to do it. You, you've got to have a lot of bandwidth to do it. And there's groups out there that can help you with that. Is that something that a lawyer particularly is involved with, or is that something that you guys can assist people with or point them in the right direction? Sure. Yeah. So we we're fairly plugged in within the industry, right? So a lawyer is working on, I would say a more scalable program for securitizations. So some of the big lists of getting into securitization is, right, you have to have your data correct. You talk to anybody involved with that. That could mean a lot of different things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to be able to pull your data from your systems correctly on time um, to report to investors. So when you issue securitization and you're dealing with the SEC at that point, so it can be a little bit more of, uh, of a constraint. The, the cost associated with securitizations is massive, for lack of a better term. 
And it, it's a great tool. It's an incredible tool for a handful of credit unions. And so I'll say this, I talked to a $300 million credit union last week about this because they were interested in, hey, we, we hear about this. We should, you want to sell like $30 million into the securitization. And I had to take 30 minutes just to give them a high level overview of this is what it entails. And these are the costs. $300 million credit union probably shouldn't be doing a securitization. And there, there's a lot that goes into that, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a creative solution that we can create that will allow for more credit unions to access that. And that's what we're looking at right now. We don't have a solution ready to come in and say, Hey, give me a call. But that is something we are actively looking at and working on, but we're pretty plugged in with most of the players. And if you're interested in it now and you want to learn more, give me a call. I'll tell you all the players who's involved right now, be happy to introduce you to them and we can, we can educate at, and that perspective as well. But yeah, securitizations will continue to be that. And as more and more credit unions do it, they'll talk to one another, they'll share good information with one another. So every new credit union that comes along that does it, it'll be an easier lift for the next credit. That's how right. those things yeah. work. That's the beauty of how credit unions are, are truly cooperative, right? So they, yep. they share that wisdom. And then as you're talking through that, I'm thinking maybe down the road, it sounds like a credit union service organization or QSO that, that might be able to help people pool and share the cost potentially. So there's there's something there. Well, we'll figure, somebody will figure it out. There's that. Yeah. Somebody will figure it out. There's a lot of smart people out there that, that, and that, and like you said, out of crisis, new ideas are born as everybody was doing the loan participations for so long. And then the tide went out and the liquidity tightened up and that wasn't there. And it made people a little bit tighter and again, the securitization is a good option. Now you mentioned deposit swaps. When I hear that, is that the type of scenario where you can double the amount of insurance because you're sweeping it over to another institution or is it something different than that? I don't want to opine on that just because okay. I'm not an expert. I just remember reading about it and, and wow, this is really cool. And I've heard of other ways around how credit unions are trying to get extra insurance and or trying to skirt where they're taking in, I don't know, a million dollars and then they're flowing off. 750,000 could keep it. And I, I don't know if those are, if that's legit. So I don't want to give anybody bad advice here. Deposits are not my cup of tea. That being said, I thought it was super interesting. And so I just want to, yeah. you know, I highlight that go, Hey, credit unions are going to do interesting things and they're going to continue to do interesting things because they have to. Because they have to. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Another thing that in the long term potentially could impact credit unions, banks, life insurance companies is uh, the recent 100-year report uh, from the FHFA on the federal home loan bank system and the the whole uh, role that they play. I know that I, I interviewed Ryan Donovan, who's the head of the, the trade associations for the federal home loan banks. And there's acts that would require acts of Congress. There's acts that would require regulation changes by the FHFA. And then there's guidance that they could put out. But any thoughts on what you've read relative to that whole arena and how things will, how, how a lawyer works with credit unions versus federal home loan banks or with, or any intel there or sure. thoughts you have on that whole arena? Yeah. So like the FHLB, a lawyer is a lender, right? In, in that regard. So all your corporates, all the corporates, I think there's 
nine or 11 of us at this point, but all of us are lenders, right? And we're really an aggregator of deposits. And that's why we were created. And we were the, to my knowledge, I believe we were the first QSO, right? Like corporates were the first QSO. They were kicked out of banks and, and to, to go access the Fed and then provide liquidity. So to this day that we still hold those two truths, we just do those things a little bit differently. So just like the FHLB, we are a lender. What I would say is we're, we are a lender basically on a day-to-day perspective. We can provide term lending and we do, and I think it's a great option. We have competitive rates most of the time, but we're not a federally guaranteed company like the Federal Home Loan Bank. So I'll, credit unions will say my, my rate is much lower at the FHLB. That's true because the cost of funds is essentially zero. And so I, to say all that, so a lawyer is a lender and that's one of our main components of what we do. We do it in a different way. In general, we do it on a day-to-day basis. So if you need, if you can't hit payroll or a large deposit came out and when you have an investment coming in the next week or two, you're probably going to borrow from a corporate. It just tends to be a little bit easier. FHLBs, from what I can see, generally, that's a little bit more of your, your planned borrowing, right? We need money for X amount of time. You're going to go to the FHLB. You're going to do that. Or you're going to take advantage of maybe some down rates at the FHLB and some up rates and an arbitrage opportunity elsewhere. That was a big thing for two years that credit unions did. All that to stay. Credit unions typically don't use the FHLB as an emergency source of liquidity, which if you look at that, the hundred year report, which you're referencing and all the stuff that happened with SVB and all the other banks, they were using that as an emergency, the FHLB system as an emergency source. So I do think that there will be some changes in how financial institutions can borrow from the FHLB. I don't know what that's going to be. And regardless, I don't believe how credit unions access the FHLB is the same way it is really what makes the FHFA worried. That being said, they are, they're a community financial depository, right? They likely are going to, there's going to be some, some instance where whatever is changed through the FHA, it's going to play a part in how they're credit unions access to FHLB. What that is, I don't know. I hope it's not much, but I, I, I am anticipating at some point something's going to change and who, who knows what that is. Maybe they'll restrict borrowings in some way. I've heard, maybe, I, I didn't listen to Ryan's podcast, but maybe I've heard along the lines of they want the FHLB to go back to its original form, which was basically just for mortgage lending. That would have drastic impact on the industry if they did something of that nature, um, which would put more pressure on the corporates to be even, an even greater liquidity provider. Now, yeah, that's a, a theme of, of that report for sure. So I think uh, for me, the takeaway is it's, it's good to have options. Like life is about maintaining options and, and having a good relationship with the corporate, having a relationship at the federal home loan bank, the Fed, if your asset size allows for it. But CLF even, it's good to have options. And, and of course, the corporates being part of the cooperative system are always a great one to have in your toolbox for sure. Sure. Yeah. The CLF is something that I don't think enough credit unions look at. If I were to sit here on the soapbox, though, they, I would seriously, seriously suggest looking at it. Uh, I know that, yeah, 
I know NCUA would agree with you, and uh, it's always on the list to get a little bit of regulatory change and small credit unions have some more liquidity challenges as that way that whole system is set up. And I know the corporates have covered uh, for the small uh, credit unions in some of the crises of the past and recently agree with you that CLF's a good thing to check out to see if it makes sense for the individual credit unions. I don't recall the non-member deposits. Non-member deposits yet. I know that they play a role. Is that something that a lawyer assists with, or is that just a trend that you've seen in credit unions out there? Any thoughts on non-member deposits and how credit unions are utilized? Well, credit yeah. unions are utilizing non-member deposits as part of their liquidity tools. Yeah, it's something that a lawyer assists with. We are an owner in a QSL primary financial, which they have the sickly CD program. It is a massive piece of the liquidity toolkit. And one of the real cool things that we've seen, and, and this will be going into your question 10 minutes ago or five minutes ago, what do you see on the horizon? I see more assets going outside of the system. And recently what, what they've allowed this year is, uh, and, and a little bit last year was credit unions who issue non-member deposits, who meet certain criteria to be able to hit the DTC market which effectively allows them to go get other institutional investors in those non-member deposits. And I've talked to a lot of non-credit union investors over the last year and a half. Credit unions are, are wonderful for other institutional investors. They hit the ESG uh, threshold that, that investors are looking for. So if you're a credit union, specifically low income, low income designated, and you do not have, you're not set up yet to um, access the DTC market. It's a great opportunity for you to, to go and do that. It's extended in a couple of pieces of paper, right? But now you're able to access this huge market of institutional investors and not just other credit units, right? And DTC, NCUA itself, we were always really good at, at acronyms, but if someone doesn't know what DTC stands for, could you? Yeah, it's Depository Trust Company. Ultimately, it's just a way, it's an acronym. That's the company that basically puts the QCIP on it. Again, yeah, I got maybe, it. maybe I'm messing this up, but I believe it's the one that puts the QCIP on it and allows them to go and access the other institutional investors. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. I should know more about that. I, 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 I did a little homework for me after this. There you go. As always, it's the sharpening the saw, the, saw, the continual learning, learning that, uh, that those, those of us that, that love this industry, there's always something to learn. That's for sure. Yep. One of the challenges I mentioned in 2023, there are a handful of credit unions out there that reached for yield as it related to investments. And you gave an example of a credit union that's normally at 50% low to assets and, and they feel a little tight because they're at 60. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other credit unions that that didn't, and there's banks, quite frankly, a lot of banks too, that maybe were a little slow at pricing their loans during 2023. And so, especially if they maybe did some, they had the parameters set with their, their loans, they did indirect loans, et cetera, and they had them priced and they were a little slower to, to, to change and move them up. And then they booked a little bit, their loan assets, let's say went from 75 to 90 before they can turn the spigot off. And then delinquencies are spiking up a little bit and those loans are, were priced in a, in a, for a market that was 200 basis points ago. Any thoughts relative to 2024, how people should be approaching loan pricing in conjunction with 
the fact that they might be, you said they're back generally where they were coming into COVID liquidity wise. Any thoughts on uh, that arena uh, from what you've seen and what we might expect in 2024? Yeah, one one thing that I think more and more credit unions are getting attuned to is liquidity management really is starting at the loan pricing. Like it's starting at loan origination. And to your point, Mark, credit unions were a little slow on doing that. And those that were attuned with the market because liquidity, you know, loan sales, whether it's participation or securitization were a piece of their liquidity management toolkit. They had to reprice this basically every day, which is a very smart way to go about doing things. More credit unions, regardless of size, are repricing their loans and being a little bit more competitive on a regular basis, which is great. So I, you know, my advice to any credit union is to price competitively. And I get some pushback with that from credit unions, rightfully so, which is, hey, we're here to serve our membership. And if that means giving a power loan at 299, we're doing the best we can. And I would say you are, and that's great. And if your balance sheet can handle a 299 car loan for however long it's going to stay on, because it's probably not going to reprice or get sold off or anything of that nature, then great. Continue to serve your membership. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. But if you need to sell loans at any time, you need to understand where that market is. And so the best thing to do is, is follow those markets and, and the, the loan sale market can follow different benchmarks across the board. The easiest way to do it is to just understand where the treasury market is and price somewhere around that for your consumer loans, right? Mortgage loans are going to be something different. Commercial loans are going to be something different. So wherever your benchmark is on your loans that you need to have that Make sure you just, you're, you're following those and you can price your loans accordingly. As for anybody who's sitting on loans that are quote unquote underwater right now, that's a tough conversation. Does it make sense for you to sell loans at a loss? At what loss did that make you make sense? That is a conversation we have with credit unions every day and one that we'll continue to have. And sometimes it makes sense, right? You can take that, those, that money. You can pay off some high, higher debt. You can reinvest it in another type of investment. You can make new loans at market rates, right? So you have to figure out what the best is be for you. Or you just sit on them, right? Most credit unions don't like taking losses ever. Most of the time they just sit on them. Conversation to have. And that might not, it might be the right decision. It might not be the right decision, but it's easy to, it's like when you buy a stock and it goes down and you want to wait for it to get back to the price you paid for it. And it might never. Sure. A bit also, that's the beauty of liquidity. Hey, liquidity, you can manage your way through it as long as your asset quality holds. If you bought AAA treasuries that are just upside down because you went a little bit long, if you have the ability to hold, they'll, you'll get them paid back fully. And if you sure. have the ability to hold those car loans, they'll do the same. That doesn't mean repositioning might make sense, like you said, because you can get the money out earning at a higher rate. And that's a lot of math that goes behind that. Uh, I do know that NCUA, and I've had conversations directly with some of the regional directors that they've told credit unions and they've told their staff, if someone finds themselves in that position and they want to purge a little bit of risk, uh, which results in their net worth coming down a little bit because it positions them better for the long term, that NCUA is going to look very positively at the 
approach that that looks at it in that light and is measured. But it is hard sometimes for people to say, hey, I took a loss on this and they'd rather just let it ride at times. Sure. Yeah, it's difficult. And that's a conversation that each credit union must have amongst themselves at a management level, could be even at a board level. In conjunction, I would say this, in conjunction with your examiner, not a bad thing if you can do that too. Right. At least let them know that's coming if that's a decision that you are thinking about. Yeah. Those are tough conversations and those are done at an individual credit union level. I, I would never say what's good for one is good for everybody. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Billy, this is, this has been it, an enjoyable conversation. Uh, I'm sure there's a question perhaps that I should have asked you that I didn't. Is there anything else you'd like to highlight here as we wrap up our, our chat today? No, I think, I think we're good. The quicker we can get off record and start talking college basketball again. It was always That's good. right. Yeah. Yeah. We had a, a good chat about college basketball, college football, and even teeny tiny lakes in the Adirondacks that, that we were both surprisingly close history we have with, with both of our loves of the Adirondack Mountains in New York. Very good. Now, so if someone, Bill, if someone wants to reach out to you and Aloya, what's the best way for them to continue? If this triggered some questions they'd like to ask you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, two ways. The, the quickest probably is LinkedIn. Like you said, Mark, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. And you can look me up. It's William Bash Payton. I'm the one at Aloya Corporate. I think that there's numerous William Baytons out there, but I'm the one at Aloya Corporate. So that's my profile. You can shoot me a, a connection or a message is fine as long as you're not trying to sell something. And then the, the other one is you can email me at bill, B-I-L dot Payton. So P-H-E-O-N, so B-I-L dot P-A-T-O-N at aloyacorp.org. So A-L-O-Y-A-C-O-R-P.org. So again, the easiest is LinkedIn after that mouthful. But, but yeah, you can you know shoot me an email, shoot me a LinkedIn, happy to connect to however you want. It's great. And I will put your, your LinkedIn profile, a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So if someone listens to it and goes down into the notes, they can, they could find it there as well. Bill, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed chatting with you about all things liquidity and all things related to Aloya and what you're doing there to help credit unions. Thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Have a great one. You you got it. And listeners, I want to thank you for uh, listening again. I hope you'll listen again soon. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com.